this idea of happy high status allows us to believe as individuals, no matter what our supposed social status is, whatever label we are supposed to accept of successful, unsuccessful, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. If you're happy high status, you are enough in yourself. You are entitled and empowered in yourself. You give yourself high status, even if nobody else does it. But it's called happy high status because it's not forceful or resentful. It's gentle, it's magnanimous, it's generous. Hi and welcome everyone to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. It's Boris here. Today I'm speaking with the amazing and prolific Viv Groskob. She's a journalist, author, podcaster and comedian. She wrote six books, two of which we're going to spend some time on in the episode. They're called How to Own the Room and her very recent book out now called Happy High Status. In our conversation we talk a bit about Viv's experiences with comedy and what it's taught her. For example, how our minds trick us about how we're perceived by others. We talk about how to be more like a comedian, well, sort of. What we're getting at there is how to bring more lightness, joy, fun into our lives without becoming clownish, of course. We then turn to how to own the room in a way that's authentic to you. This could involve extroversion, positive energy, even enthusiasm, but it can also involve radiating a kind of quiet energy, focus, presence. In short, we discuss how to exist in life in front of other people, as Viv puts it. We then turn to Happy High Status, the subject of her latest book. It's about being at ease, radiating a kind of self-assuredness without arrogance. We land on a definition that blends humility and confidence into an authentic presence. Really enjoyed this conversation with Viv Groskop and hope you do too. So hello everyone, welcome, welcome. I'm Boris, I'm sitting down with Viv Groskop today. Viv, did I say it right? Yeah, you did. Thank you. My name Super. Groskop. It's a difficult surname and it's been said a hundred different ways, but your way is the right way. Thank you, Boris. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. So um, just by way of background, you're a um, broadcaster, comedian, published author. You uh, studied the classics. Uh, you garnered lots of real life experience with topics ranging from confidence, presence, humor. There's a whole range of things. And the reason why I wanted to make sure we talk is I thought you had something extremely interesting and profound to say about how we carry ourselves and radiate confidence out into the world um, with the impact of, you know, allowing for really meaningful interactions with others could be anything from, you know, closing a business deal to inspiring your team. So we'll get to that. But maybe in your own words, Viv, could you give us a little bit of background what, what what's your story I mean you came from studying the classics and you ended up uh, doing what exactly well everything I do really stems from curiosity you know I was very curious as a child um, I grew up in quite a small town in the southwest of England in the 1970s with no internet <laughs> long before <laughs> the internet was invented And I always wanted to be out in the world and traveling and meeting people. Um, writing was important to me from an early age, but not so much because 
I love the solitude of writing. It's one of the things I find the most difficult about writing. But because I write to connect with other people, to connect with readers, to really ask, do, do you think this too? <laughs> so I had that from an early age, and I also love languages. You know, I studied French, German, and Spanish at school. I studied Russian at university. Um, I spent time in Ukraine when I was studying Russian, and so I speak some Ukrainian. So I've wow. always had a fascination for other people, for connecting with people, for opening conversations with people. And at the same time, I love stories, and I love the depiction of stories on stage, on screen. I did a lot of acting and theater when I was a student. That all became part of journalism in my 20s and my 30s. And I had a you know 15-year career as a journalist um, living and working in London. Um, I did a lot of work in the former Soviet Union, and I was a contributing editor at Russian Vogue for 10 years, working from London. And I write still for The Guardian and The Financial Times um, from London. But around my mid-30s, I felt that my life was becoming a little bit too narrow professionally, maybe because I'm quite a restless person or maybe just because that does happen to you in your career. You know, I don't think anyone can keep the same career, even if it's logistically possible. You, you get bored. I was yeah, getting bored yeah. and stale as a journalist. So I began in my mid-30s to revisit a lot of the passions and ideas that I'd had as a child, um, to look for the things that were missing, to look for the avenues that I'd cut off. And for me, one of those was comedy and performing. And I realized at that age, something that I think is so important for all of us to realize is that nobody is ever really stopping you from doing anything. Uh, the person usually stopping you is you. <laughs> and I had been stopping myself from doing comedy or theater or writing for stage um, because I thought it was too difficult and because I thought you had to wait to be asked. Uh, and it took me, you know, a good 15 years of professional life to realize the most interesting things in any job nobody asks you to do them. You have to take them for yourself. You have to invent them. You have to be ready to be rejected. You have to learn to get it wrong. Uh, you spend such a long time waiting and waiting if you're waiting for someone else to create opportunities for you. So once I'd admitted that to myself and realized if I want this to happen, I need to make it happen, I started to perform comedy. And I was very lucky because I had a career as a freelance journalist. So this was not a financial risk for me, or not a huge one. So I could continue my other work whilst I developed my comedy. It wasn't as if, you know, these things are very difficult because we're in one job and we want to start something new, but we need the money from the first job because we all have lives to lead and responsibilities. So I was lucky that I had the opportunity to do that. It was self-created, but I'm very lucky that I'm able to work like that. And it suits me. What were you after in comedy? Was it the, let me entertain the audience? And was that the, the, the rush you were seeking? Or did you have an agenda that you wanted to raise certain points onto people's I awareness? Think it, yeah, I think it was two things. One was something selfish, which was that I really wanted 
to do something for myself that felt exciting and important and I wanted to express a part of myself. Um, I was very worried initially when I started comedy that it was a selfish thing and it was a self-indulgent um, pursuit, you know, like maybe I should just go to therapy or learn. Yeah, I, do, I have gone to therapy, by the way, <laughs> a lot um, since before then as well. Or maybe I should do yoga and meditation, you know, like sometimes we want to do things and we have to admit that they're for ourselves. But there was another part to this too. The second part was I really wanted to connect to other people. The way I had been writing and the writing that I had been doing, I enjoyed it when it resonated with other people and I had a yeah. direct contact with them about what they thought about what I'd said, how it made them feel. And that's what I really love in all live performance is the connection between human beings when it becomes yeah. something much bigger than yourself. So it did have a selfish part to it. And I think it's, it's good for us to do some, we, you know, we're all selfish, really. That's part of our survival instinct. So you have sure. to do things because you're interested in it and, and it makes you feel good. But more than that, it connected me to something bigger than myself. Um, was I chasing laughs, chasing, wanting to be entertaining, um, maybe a little bit, but that fell away quite quickly, um, because you don't really want to be the kind of performer who is taking their self-worth and their sense of approval from others. That's very dangerous. Um, it's very easy to fall into that trap. Um, in that kind of work <laughs> and it's yeah, very addictive sure. you know when other people give you that love and when you're making them laugh it is addictive and it's so painful when it's the opposite but you have to want to do it for some bigger reason than that I think. how would you describe how would you describe your bigger reason for doing it it's really about being truly alive for me mm. and the older I get and the more complicated the world seems and the faster life moves and the more I encounter conversations about artificial intelligence and the prevalence of digital media and screens in our lives, um, there are many, many benefits and advantages to those things. But they are not really about celebrating being truly alive as a human being. And for me, the connections of live comedy, theatre, storytelling, even if it's an encounter with an author at a book festival where you've only read their words on the page, they're not an entertainer, but you can have a face-to-face -face conversation with them or see them being interviewed by somebody. It's those encounters where we're breathing the same air as other people. Mm. Um, and again, yeah. COVID underlined this for me as well, a time when we couldn't breathe the same air <laughs> as each other. Um, those things are really important to me and they're, I think, what makes life meaningful. You once did, if I'm not wrong, 100 consecutive nights of stand-up in sort of 100 shows in as many days. What patterns emerged for you about how best to interact with the audience? What did you learn from doing this? 
Well, I did this experiment, yeah, 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights. I did it in order to establish patterns. I had been performing comedy for 18 months, maybe two years at that point, quite sporadically and without very much focus. Um, I had um, three young children at at that time and I was still working as a writer as a journalist. And I didn't know if comedy was part of my professional path or just something that I was experimenting with to inform my journalism. I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do this experiment because in comedy, when you start, a lot of people say you don't really know who you are as a comedian or if you should continue. Uh, until you've done 100 gigs. And after 18 months Uh, or two years, I had done maybe 30, 40, 50 gigs. And I was realizing, because I was doing maybe two or three a month, and I thought, I have to to speed this up. You know, I'm not getting any younger. I don't want (laughs) to waste my time and other people's time. Um, I'll do my 100 gigs in the best part of three months. So I conceived this rule where if I miss a gig, I have to do two the next night. If I miss two nights, I have to do three the next night. This is very normal in comedy, you know, in order to get your stage experience, because in the beginning you can usually only perform for five minutes or 10 minutes on stage. It's very difficult to get up to that mythical 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about getting five minutes of stage time at a time. So it's very common for comedians to try to find two, three, four, five gigs a night, especially somewhere like London. You, You can do that or you could 10 years ago. Now I think it's a bit harder. The patterns that I noticed were really to do with the gap between my personal experience of how I thought something had gone and the reality. So my own experience was very up and down and very confused. There were some gigs where I thought it had gone really well. And then I would listen back to the evidence. Um, Sometimes I would record on video or on on, uh, an audio recording. And I would realize actually it had gone quite badly when I thought it had gone well. And then the reverse would be true. I would feel that it was just such a terrible, terrible uh, set that I had done and I would listen to it back and actually it was much better than I thought. So I really realized how, and this is one of the reasons I became fascinated in this theme of confidence and being yourself in front of others and letting go of your ego I realized how much our minds trick us. So our minds very rarely tell us the truth about how we're being perceived, what difference we're making, what others are seeing. And obviously in comedy, it's very brutal because the response of the audience is, you know, it's 100% of the success. You know, you I don't believe that in life you should base all of your evaluation of yourself on others. You should always take it from yourself first. But in comedy, unless people laugh, it has not worked. <laughs> so yeah. you might, yeah, yeah, you yeah. might, you can, you can be as funny as you think you are. But if if there's no laughter in the room and you can hear it, like it's a very concrete proof of success. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So 
learning how to achieve something consistent this is a, the also really important thing in comedy is you have to be con- in control of the result and it must be relatively consistent like relatively is important because we cannot all be five stars every single night you're always going to have one night when you're a bit four star or a bit three star and it's not your night and you might have a night when you're six stars if it existed um but you can't be the same every night but you need to maintain a level of high consistency and learning how to get out of my own way to achieve that instead yeah. of following this internal narrative of well i thought that was great or i thought that was bad and being guided by my emotions was not helpful i needed to find strategies i needed to find methods i needed to work on the material on the delivery and learning how to take the emotions of the self out of it was really helpful that's a that's a really interesting theme and i'm sure we'll come to that when we talk about this notion of happy high status and what that feeling is like when you radiate that sort of effortless confidence that draws others towards you but the lesson that you seem to have taken from comedy is not to trust your own inner monologue so that little voice that goes god you're slow you can't find the right word like the punchline's not hitting your speed your you know elocution those things are not tight so therefore the audience is not loving it all of this might be right but it might be completely wrong and if the lesson is to not overrate that inner voice but to allow that that sort of openness to receive signal back from the audience you might arrive in a very different place i thought that was very important and this idea that you could also you know when, once you let go of your ego you know you, you can allow let's say more attention to to others and what that paradoxically produces is somehow um, more ease, being more present and more relaxed, which strangely then ladders up to confidence. But but we'll get there. I, I wanted to ask one more thing about the comedy. And um, perhaps to to start with a, with a little personal anecdote, if I may. So I spent a lot of time, most of my professional working life um, in the corporate space. Um, there was a brief bit as an academic, and then I moved to consulting and later on held a job as a manager. And I loved to present. So I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, I really looked forward to it. And the reason why I did was because I guess there was something similar going on to stand-up comedy, which which was I felt I had stories to tell. And I was sort of chomping at the bit to, to have a chance to tell the story to the audience. So if it was a workshop setting or a meeting, that was the audience. So equivalent to the people mm. in your comedy club. And I had my material prepared, like a comedian had their jokes and stories prepared. And I was so excited about them. I was looking forward to the opportunity to get up in front of the mic and share that story. And if I felt like the story had some real meaning or lessons or had some value, some insight, a recommendation to facilitate a decision, what have you, I was really positively joyful about it. And then I tried to steal a bit from comedy with things like storytelling there would be a bit of a buildup and, you know, you, you had some expectations, but oh my God, they were frustrated because the customers did different things, but we have an idea <laughs> on how to respond. And in fact, it's not what you think. It's something counterintuitive. <laughs> and then finally, here it is, the big reveal. And you would sort of hold back a bit before the punchline is delivered. So 
Anyway, this was obviously a very personal experience, and I know not everybody sees it that way. And I also know that most people don't find management meetings as interesting as comedy shows. But what would you say? <laughs> is there anything one you know could learn from comedy about presenting, facilitating a business workshop, um, using humor, connecting with the audience? You say in one of your books, "Be more like a comedian." in brackets, sort of. So, so t tell us, like, what, what's the transfer? Yeah, the sort of is really important because I get asked a lot, how can, how can I be funny in this speech? How can I tell a joke at the beginning of this presentation? How can I get my team to laugh? And it's a mistake to try to be literally like a comedian, to try to do the job of a comedian. Comedians are almost sociopathic in the way that they prepare and control their material in order to make it look spontaneous. And if you were to do that in a work context where your job is not to create a laugh every 30 seconds. Like in, com in comedy, your job is to create a laugh every 30 seconds. And if you don't, you, you won't get paid. Like you won't have a career. Um, mm. That's not true in any other part of corporate life. Like in corporate life, you're not trying to maintain a consistent level of laughter in the room. <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to maybe bring some levity. So I always, when I say sort of be like a comedian, I would say use the hallmarks of comedy, which are creating warmth in a room, creating lightness, um, bringing something silly or playful or childish, um, which, you know, you have to be really cautious with these things in a corporate environment, but they can also be very powerful. Uh, so it's bringing a flavor of comedy rather than thinking I must make people laugh I must tell a joke. I must use humor. Um, especially, I think, nowadays, you know, we have so many difficult conversations about hierarchy and about diversity and inclusion, about different cultures, different languages. And people forget that in comedy, audiences are very, very specific. You know, no two comedians have the same audience. And um, they're people with every, every comedy audience has a different sense of humor, different taste. Um, a comedian usually has an audience who predominantly speaks their language as a first native language. Um, if even if, you know, anybody listening to this who speaks other languages, you know, I speak French fluently and I've spent a lot of time in France. I've worked on a French newspaper. If I go to watch a French stand-up comedian, wow, I have to concentrate. Yeah. And even if I understand every word, a lot of the cultural references will be lost to me. A lot of the wordplay would be something I would have to go and think about and have a friend explain to me. Um, so comedy is its an incredibly idiosyncratic way of connecting often in a particular language so in a corporate context a comedy can be very dangerous because you will lose a lot of the room uh, and it can look as if yes um and, you know and especially native english speakers it can make you look very entitled if you're using humor and idiom and oh yes we all understand what i'm talking about here ha 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 
Um, Very inside using, jokes. Yeah, if you're, if you're using that to make half of the room laugh, but the other half of the room are thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about and I can't keep up. <laughs> that, that's that's not, not a good working environment. So I always say, you know, use lightheartedness, warmth, uh, a feeling of welcome, a feeling of what can be called hostliness. So mm. feeling that you're a good host and everybody is welcome, conviviality, hospitality, um, making people feel as if they belong there, um, bringing lightness and warmth to your face, even like even if you're delivering bad news. Um, Barack Obama does this really brilliantly. He often has to talk about very serious or difficult topics. If you turn the sound off, you can see the lightness in his face and the warmth in his eyes. He's always got a hopeful expression. Even, you know, very rarely that you see him frown. So bringing lightness to things is often a lot more useful than bring, bringing comedy. Tell us about owning the room. Because there's a natural next step from being on stage with the microphone, telling your story, building up to the punchline. The audience hangs on to every word. You can see them almost, you know, in aspiration, watching your lips. That is like owning the room. But but wh why are you so interested in, in owning the room? How, how did that whole podcast, I mean, you have a very rich, very long, very extensive podcast with an amazing set of guests called How to Own the Room. Tell us about how you got to that theme, please. Well, I became obsessed with how there are no rules to this. And we've already covered a lot of the reasons why that is. We've hinted at it. In comedy, I was always trying to achieve this consistency and I was always looking at other people who did own the room and think, how do they do that? Why is that person resonating? Why am I not always resonating? How do I find that consistency? And I slowly realized that the most important thing is not to copy other people and that you, you know, obviously you can draw influence and inspiration from other people, but you cannot copy them. You know, no two people own the room or move through the world in the same way. We are all completely individual. And if anybody thinks about their colleagues or their friends or their family members, people they feel warm around, people they feel confident and comfortable around. Nobody does it the same. You know, we all, we all have different ways of making other people feel comfortable. Some of us do it by being enthusiastic and passionate and bringing excitement. Um, I sometimes call that like the cheerleaders. You know, we need cheerleaders uh, in our working lives and in our Um, in our private lives, we need we need people who are all, almost always positive, um, like the character Tigger in Winnie the Pooh. Right? Mm. We need Tigger, um, but then people also bring confidence and warmth and hope by being very quiet and listening, to, by being quietly encouraging, uh, by being shy, by being authentic in that quietness. So it's never one thing and it's not about trying to copy someone else or be like someone else. The more I realized that, the more I realized how exciting that is. And I wanted to explore it in the podcast by interviewing other people of how, 
how did you come to this realization? How did you achieve the impacts that you have in your communications? And to try and demonstrate to people that there are no rules because, of course, we all know the basics of standing up and talking in front of people, um, you know, projecting your voice or different ways of preparing, et cetera, et cetera. But the more that you dig into this and how people actually achieve what they want to achieve in their given context, the more you realize that people often discover how to connect with their um, environment. They often discover it by experimenting. And there's, you know, I was talking to somebody last night who I did an event and she was the person hosting it. So she was doing all of the introductions and welcoming the people and introducing the speakers. And she said to me afterwards, oh, I'm really sorry that I was using cards. I was reading it. And I said, well, how could you, how could you not? Why is that a problem? That's, you can read off a card if you want to. And she said, well, you never do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's true, I, I probably wouldn't read off anything unless I was reading for, like if I was doing an awards ceremony, that's like so much script, I would read from that script. But most of the time I don't. But that's not because I'm doing something right and she's doing something wrong. It's just different. It's different energy. It's different signaling. Um, if you're running an event and you have lots of people to introduce, it's perfectly acceptable to have a clipboard or an auto cue and read off it. Now, most of the speeches that you'll see from politicians on television, they're reading off an auto cue. You know, they, in real life, you would have that on a piece of paper in front of you. Yeah. Um, so it's really realizing that there's no hierarchy of this person's doing it right, this person's doing it wrong. It's all about what works for you, what makes you feel comfortable. Because if you feel comfortable and you make it look as if this is the right thing to do, other people will believe you. Now, the, one of the first people who helped our podcast take off was when we got Hillary Clinton. And yeah. that is one of her mottos is people will take their cues from you. People will take their cues C-U-E-S, take their cues from you. So however you behave people will assume it's normal if you're the one who's doing the speaking. So if you read, people will think that's okay. If you don't read, people will think that's okay. If you move between the two, they'll also think it's okay. (laughs) So people will always assume that whatever they're watching is what is meant to happen. And that's something else you learn in comedy is whatever you put on a stage people really struggle to believe if there's a mistake. They think the mistake was intentional. You know, <laughs> even if you fall over on stage, they think you meant to do that. It's part of the uh, act. And, yeah, and that's also true um, when things happen in a corporate context. So whatever you do, people will take it at face value. So it's okay to do it your way. Maybe one step back. In terms of the meaning of owning the room, um, which part of it are you particularly interested in? Is it the is it the own part? So when I think of owning the room, what it reminds me of is it's really about power. It's about taking the leadership 
initiative and going on the offensive. So owning the room is all eyes on me. It's like people look to whoever's owning the room to drive a decision or to make a statement and clarify an argument or to break a truce or a tie. So is it about that as in I am steering the room, I am commanding the room? Or is it about something more subtle, like I'm respected when I speak up or when I make a point, people listen and pay attention as opposed to, you know, mentally reload what they're going to say next. Like, what is the thing you're, you're interested in here? Or both? Maybe. I get, yeah, I guess for me, it's all of these things. And it's a very open conversation about, how, you know, I, I could have also called it how to exist in life in front of other people. <laughs> like, mm. To me, that's what mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, it's not, for some people, it is how to own the room. So like Hillary Clinton owns the room. If I go into an environment, usually I will try to own the room because people expect me to, and that's what they want me to do. <laughs> but for other people, Um, in particular, who I've interviewed on the podcast, but also who, um, you know, people ask questions in workshops and in public events all of the time about this. People who own the room by having influence outside the room and in the room, they own it by being a really, really great listener. Uh, So (laughs) for me, it's everything from being a very forceful personality Um, and how you do that with grace or with attack, if you need to, right through to being very quiet, maybe even being somebody who doesn't really want to speak very often, um, but who supports the speaking of others. So it's always trying to broaden this definition of what power looks like and sounds like, um, how you take that power And trying to give people an awareness of the idea that power is not given, it is taken. And there are so many characters in particular in the political sphere um, in this part of the 21st century who are taking power by owning the room in a way that is very brash and unsubtle and is really about them we need to see more variations and more extremes here of very quiet people learning how to take power, humble people learning how to take power. So for me, owning the room is really about broadening that definition. And for some people, this is disappointing for them. They don't want to hear it. They want how to own the room to be how to get one over on everyone else, how to be Mm. the best, how to get the edge. And it's not that, it's the opposite of that. It's about finding a way of expressing yourself that feels authentic to you and useful for everyone else. It's not about being the loudest and the most powerful and blowing everyone away with how amazing you are. Yeah, It could well be the opposite, that you pass unnoticed, and that's how you owned the room. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it comes back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation when you described some of this inner monologue that was holding you back from jumping into comedy. A lot of people are either too quick to 
accept somebody else's initiative to own the room. And so you just basically get in line and you say, okay, let, let the extroverts drive this conversation and you know, I will speak up when I have a point. Or they just settle for this inner monologue that says, well, you maybe you're not the alpha person here, so you won't own the room. So I don't know, just take notes and you know, walk away with clarity on your decision or what have you. And to me, it seems like a lot of this work is about saying, hang on a minute, don't listen to that inner voice. If you want to influence an outcome with integrity, there are ways to do that. You will find your own way of doing it. As you mentioned, some of that might be in a very quiet, uh, sort of reserved way, but nonetheless highly impactful. And you can be there and you can be respected. You don't have to let people talk over you just because they're the ones whose way of owning the room is the brash way. Yeah, I hope that a lot of the conversations that I open demonstrate the reality of these preconceptions that we have. I've come across so many people who will say, well, there's no point in me learning how to do this because mm. I just work with people who talk over me all the time. Yeah. And there's such a huge conversation about meeting culture and how you know, there are lots of senior leaders who are calling that out now. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, uh, whose work I find very inspiring and whose energy I find very inspiring. Mm -hmm. he, he only has meetings for five minutes um, because otherwise, you know, all of the extroverts and all of the big thinkers and big ideas people, they just fill, fill the room with their thoughts <laughs> and they could go on for, for 10 hours if you let them. Um, so yeah. to get things done, shorter <laughs> meetings are often, or I hear people now having meetings standing up, you know, nobody sits down in the meeting. Uh, yeah, and a yeah, huge, yeah. huge conversation around, you know, zoom and uh, screen communications about whether those meetings really need to happen, that the expression, this meeting could have been an email, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. uh, so when I talk about the reality, we all know that actually those loud voices, they may have filled the room and they may be prominent and they may be the first person that comes to mind when the boss thinks of who can I ask to do this thing. But we all know the truth of organizations is much more complicated than that. And the people who have the true power are not necessarily the noisiest or the most confident. There's, you know, the true picture is often something very different. So I think it really helps to open up this conversation for people to talk about where the power really lies where meaningful conversations really happen. You know, isn't it better to have a five-minute meeting with a concrete action point rather than a one-hour meeting where two or three people who are very articulate and very confident extroverts get to talk? <laughs> um, you know, these <laughs> things are now something that we, we're starting to talk about, whereas 10 years ago, we just let the extroverts talk. It. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you didn't really drive the meeting, you just sort of let it happen based on the dynamics that happened to unfold. And I, I, I find those techniques exciting. I mean, one I came across was, when you speak, make sure you say something that people in the room don't already know, or don't know from either the pre read that they may have read as a kind of preparation material to the meeting, 
or simply that they should know just by virtue of being in the company. So you really have to sort of say something net new. That's also Ooh. a pretty tricky one, especially if, you know, let me let me fight the extrovert's corner here for just a second here. If you genuinely are excited about your story and you feel like it is important and you need to get the narrative out, etc., and you're chomping at the bit to do so, um, maybe to move us along to happy high status, your your book is called Happy High Status. It just came out. Congratulations. Thank you. For, for first questions first, what is happy high status a description of? And and why status? Why not, you know, happy high energy or, mm. you know, constant levels of confidence uh, or, you know, it seems like the the word status does some work here that relates to the social order. So so mm-hmm. what is it and, and, and what does the social order mean? Yeah, so first of all, um, the word status, uh, you say status, I say status, we are both correct. So there's an Amer- <laughs> okay, <good>. American <laughs> pronunciation, status, and the British pronunciation is status, Stage. but it's all, all the same thing. Um, happy high status is not an idea or a concept or an expression that I invented. It comes mm-hmm. from improv comedy. Uh, it was coined by a theatre director called Keith Johnston, who wrote probably the most important book about improv called Impro. And his theory about status is that when we are watching comedy or something on screen or on stage, we are always watching for changes in status. And when you talk about this in a theatrical or a performance context, status is not necessarily, although it can be sometimes, but it's not the same as social status. Mm. It's not the same as this person has a mansion and this person lives in a shed. It's not the same as this person has a Ferrari and this person has a bicycle. I mean, that's a very simplistic understanding of social status. Status on stage or on screen is who has the most psychological power. So, for example, Mm. if you have a scene between a parent and a child, nominally, the parent has the more social status. But there could easily be a scene where we see how the child controls the parent. So the child is taking status. So this idea of Keith Johnson's about status moves us away from what's on your business card, who is the boss, who's got the biggest salary, takes us away from our understanding of social status and asks us who has the real power. What is your true status? And this idea of happy high status allows us to believe as individuals, no matter what our supposed social status is, whatever label we are supposed to accept of successful, unsuccessful, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. If you're happy high status, you are enough in yourself. You are entitled and empowered in yourself. You give yourself high status, even if nobody else does it. But it's called happy high status because it's not forceful or resentful. It's gentle. It's magnanimous. It's generous. So it's a way of being 
where you think to yourself, I'm good enough. Nobody is better than me and nobody is worse than me. We're all the same. We're all happy high status. And it's a way of moving through the world that is actually neutral. Neutral is the way to describe it. If Mm. you are called upon to lead, you can lead. If you need to follow because this is someone else's turn to be leader, then you can follow. Um, The kind of public figures who for me exemplify this, Michelle Obama is one. Um, She's got this kind of incredibly magnanimous, gentle energy. Uh, She's also able to force and push a point at the moments that she needs to, but she doesn't necessarily do that all of the time. Uh, The opposite of that energy, um, and I don't mean to score a political point here, but I will indulge myself. The opposite of that energy is Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is high status. He certainly believes that that he's high status. Um, Also because he has been the president. He occupies high social and professional status, but he is not happy high status because he is not happy to follow Uh, He would only, only want to lead. I mean, he's demonstrated this many, many times. So it's not about the status that others give you or the status that society gives you. It's about the status you give yourself, but not being pompous and arrogant with it. So you give yourself status, but you don't think, oh, I'm I'm amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You give yourself status to think, okay, I have status. I'm good enough. What next? What is going to be yeah. demanded in this situation? But, there, but there's a there's a lot going on there. When you manage to harness this kind of inner feeling, there's a lot going on there because your entire presence changes, the level of credibility that you radiate and your intent that, that you express changes in people's eyes. So they're a lot more ready to assume that what you're trying to do here is impact orientated as opposed to ego orientated. It's, you know, purpose driven as opposed to uh, ego driven. And when you express that kind of happy high status, I, th- I think what you're, what you're saying is I'm worthy with, w- without narcissism. You're saying I'm, I'm credible uh, without sort of inflated, uh, let's say, expectations of, of who you are, or what you're capable of. And most importantly, you radiate grace. And and I think you called it magnanimity. And, and those two things, they're really ineffable. They're very, very subtle. But they they achieve something important because they, they radiate the opposite of insecurity and, and not being self-assured at all, which undermines your credibility. And people are... I think in an almost pre-social instinctive way, very sensitive to those cues. So the way I picture it is almost like ants with their antennas buzzing, understanding all those micro signals that you're radiating. And if you radiate insecurity and nervousness and low status, you know, even physically through the body language, through the hunched shoulders and the squinting eyes or what have you, they're much less ready to entertain your perspective, much more likely to interrupt you and your intent is now more oriented around survival and and somehow maintaining your place in the the order Mm. there, uh, as opposed to achieving something impactful for whatever is the topic at hand. And now maybe my question um, building up from, from all of this is, we can all recognize that it's 
relatively easy to radiate happy high status if we are buzzing on the high of recent affirmation or recent achievement. So if we know we did something really, really well, you know, my sales figures are amazing. The last memo that I wrote, the CEO gave me lots of beautiful Google comments, you know, commenting, complimenting my reasoning or what have you. So when you're buzzing on affirmation and achievement, it's easy to carry yourself in the way that we described. But but can you project happy high status when things are not going so well? Oh yeah, there's a lot to a lot to unpick here, and you're absolutely right about the um, connection with ego and narcissism. Um, many times when I'm writing, um, this is my happy house status is my sixth book, and many times when I'm writing, I wish that I had some kind of professional qualification, like as a psychologist or a neuroscientist, so that I could really dig into these things, um, because uh, I really hope there'll be more written in the next 10 years about ego and narcissism. They're, they're talked about in a very uh, empty and uninformed way. You know, I've spent yeah. a lot of time Googling ego and narcissism and a lot of the um, stuff that you find is is written by narcissists with a massive ego, <laughs> which is quite <laughs> funny. Um, so, yeah, you're right to equate it with those. What is really fascinating about happy high status is that it looks completely different on every single person so this is you know a lesson that I'm always trying to teach about public speaking good public speaking is not one thing it's a hundred million things and it looks different on every single person so does happy high status so for somebody happy high status like you know you Boris you've got tons of energy like you love sharing your passion and your enthusiasm and it's <laughs> going to look it's going to look it's going to have that cheerleader energy on you on someone else on someone like say Greta Thunberg her happy high status is a little bit angry very quiet a little bit hesitant <laughs> but it's still that is her authentic confidence yeah it's, it's, as you rightly describe, I mean, the expression sweet spot is, is probably um, a slightly fatuous way of thinking about it, but it's you on a good day in your sweet spot. How do you access that when you're not having a good day? Exactly. Um, it, two things, really. One is you don't have to. Like, nobody can be happy high status all of the time. Um, I'm sure people will be thinking as well that there's a crossover here between something like Zen Buddhism or the energy of, you know, people who have devoted their lives to meditation. Like, and, and if you listen to any interviews with those kind of people, they will always tell you, I'm not perfect all of the time. So this is not about being Zen or happy high status all of the time. Um, so that's number one, you can't be it all of the time. Number two is it is subjective. It's completely subjective. So, you know, I mentioned Michelle Obama as this great example of happy high status. Well, there are lots of people who don't like her. There are lots of people who don't accept her excellence and her authority. So, our perception of others is entirely subjective. So there could be no person that everybody thinks that they're happy high status. Um, in terms of channeling this for yourself, um, I think of this and I do try to teach people how to do this in the book. I don't know if I can 
ever really achieve this, but I try. <laughs> um, it's about disciplining yourself to overlay those feelings of, oh, I've got this. I did something amazing. Oh, that made me feel great. Overlaying those feelings into more difficult moments. Um, yeah. Obviously, you can't be delusional and and psychopathic about this and get really excited and feel really proud when something terrible has happened to you. But remembering you always have those good feelings inside you of when something good did happen and accessing them in difficult moments may help you to find that equilibrium, that neutrality of remembering, well, this bad feeling isn't going to last forever. How can I be a bit more happy high status about this? How can I be a bit more accepting? Without also trying to be superhuman or denying true feelings. And I make a big distinction in the book as well between the moments when we are comfortable in ourselves and doing well and we are psychologically healthy and the moments when we have a problem and we need to seek help. And sometimes yeah. that help is medical or psychological. Yeah. So this is not a fix for long-term anxiety or depression. Um, sure. It's for something when you're feeling good. And it's also not an invitation for people to be inauthentic and to try to paper over those moments with artificial cheerfulness, toxic positivity, delusional self-talk. <laughs> so I, th I think it's very important because in the popular kitchen sink discourse, it can sometimes come across as, oh, you know, just like stand up straight, you know, straight back, project in front of the mirror. I got this. And I immediately, I'm immediately drawn to those images of, you know, kind of American psycho style iconography. You know, there's often a man, he's, you know, in front of a mirror, he's sort of looking deeply into his own eyes, uh, you know, reaffirming his, and he usually is a man, his, you know, power or strength. And, I mean, and it's, inauthentic and there's something very corrosive about trying to you know force fit yourself into those positive thoughts or building up confidence when, when you know there's something deeply flawed at the core like I, I don't think you can you can lie to yourself in that way you know like it's more like I think Naval Ravikant said it beautifully that um Self-confidence is maybe just the reputation you have with yourself or something like that. And and you can't lie about the reputation that you have with yourself. Like you really mm. know what it truly is. So somehow, I guess what I'm trying to build up to is there are some tactics you can use. And I want to get into those in a moment to create happy high status when things are not going well. So let's come back to that in a second. But ultimately, more deeply, there has to be some work around self-acceptance. Like you have to be able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with the way that I am. There are some things that I have as strengths. There are some things that I need to work on. And you're authentic about that. So I, I really think without doing that work, something corrosive is really going on underneath the hood. Um, I don't know, maybe you want to comment on that and then we can spend a little bit of time on what are some in-the-moment tactics. One of the things I... I'm constantly encountering when, in particular, when I'm in front of audiences and people ask questions, and this is often because I'm in front of British audiences. And so when there's a British sensibility, always, you know, different cultures have different attitudes towards how acceptable it is to be confident. 
you know, I'm pretty sure that a British person did not originate the saying, fake it till you make it, right? (laughs) It feels like a very American thing to say. I think these concepts as well and these stereotypes are becoming outdated. You know, 20 years ago, that would be, people would easily understand what's meant by British sensibility and American sensibility. I think now these things are becoming really blurred, which I I think is a good thing because these things are always stereotypes. But in audiences, I often find that people are scared to try to be more confident or more accepting of themselves or more generous towards themselves because they are so afraid of others thinking that they are arrogant or above themselves or up themselves or blowing their own trumpet. They're so afraid of that, that they would rather go to the opposite extreme of self-denial, constantly putting themselves down, listening to the inner critic all of the time, going into, so there's this sort of seesawing between extreme arrogance and narcissism and self-love and verging on the self-hate yeah, and yeah, self-negation yeah. and being a mouse. So you don't have to be a lion and you don't have to be a mouse. You can find somewhere in the middle or you can travel around the middle ground. And it's okay. I'm always saying to people, it's okay to overstep now and again so that you know where for you that boundary is. So be bold enough one day to be think, well, I'm going to be a little bit arrogant here. And maybe yep. if you decide to do that in a public um, presentation at work or in a meeting, then find yourself a trusted monitor and do it as an experiment and say, I'm going to be more arrogant than I would normally be in this meeting. Can you watch me and monitor me? And, t- and we'll talk afterwards about what that looked like. And very often when people do this, they find that the thing they're afraid of being, it doesn't actually read that way to others. We're back now to what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, exactly. What you think is going on in your head and what you're projecting. Uh, Women, especially, I notice this, I'll get them to take a very, what they think is um, an aggressive stance or a pose that is is quite uh, commanding and they will say I Viv I can't stand like that I look I'm going to look ridiculous people are going to laugh at me um they're going to think that I think I'm the queen of the world they'll think I think I'm Beyonce and I'll say no no just stand in the pose get used to it get used to standing away from the podium and feeling grounded in yourself and pulling your shoulders back And when other people see that, they don't see somebody who is full of pride and arrogance. They see somebody who's comfortable and makes them feel inspired and makes them feel like, oh, she's got this. So our own perception is extremely flawed in these things. That's a major lesson, I think. And when, when, when your own sense might be, oh, this is being overly assertive, bordering on aggressive. Someone else might say, no, this was wonderful clarity. Thank you. Like you stated your demands and your needs for whatever to deliver Project X or so. You were super clear and transparent about that. It actually came across as authenticity as opposed to sort of, you know, overbearing assertiveness or entitlement or anything like that. So I think the so we should, you know, highlight that three times, right? But that inner judge 
is often wrong and has a lot of bias uh, <laughs> that's not in your favor. On the other hand, we should be careful to over-egg the cake and, you know, hype ourselves up in, in ways that are also not true, you know. So, so what I'm thinking about is confidence before competence. So it's the exact reverse, you know. So it's like, hey, I'm th this is my turn up, you know, I will make all these demands. I will, you know, ask for a pay raise. I will ask for a promotion. I think I'm talented. And maybe you don't actually have enough signal to know with certainty that these things are true and should be more humble and more open to receive uh, data that gives you greater clarity here before you step into, you know, authority mode and, and make demands. But one thing I wanted to come back to real quick is what do you do in the moment? So someone might challenge you very aggressively in a meeting or even just debunk. Uh, you, th you, you thought you, you had made a great point. Someone else produces data to the contrary. Your point has just been debunked. So things are not going well. And m maybe I can offer a few sort of things that have worked for me in the past, and then we can build a little bit on the repertoire that you establish in your work. So, so one of the things that I've found extremely helpful, if people can get it, is to have a sort of existential safety net, almost like the trapeze artist that goes for, you know, some kind of triple flip and, and reaches for the trapeze, knows in the end that if they can't quite catch the trapeze and they will fall, there's still that net underneath that will that will carry them. And quite literally, uh, what, what I mean here is, if this interaction were really awful, and people walk away from this meeting thinking, you know, this person is an idiot, they're not credible, they're not competent, like it's, it's really bad. The actual physically worst thing that can happen is that at some point, your boss sits you down and says, uh, listen, I, I don't think that this is a great fit for the both of us, you and this company and so on. And that you will still, even if this absolutely terrible thing happens, like you will still be okay and you'll find something else and your reputation is not in tatters. In fact, no one cares as much about your reputation as you do and it's going to be okay. So that's kind of the, it's going to be okay narrative, even if the absolute worst terrible thing happens. The other thing that I found extremely helpful was, I mean, this is from the corporate world, so I don't know about other settings that much, but in the corporate world, there's usually a high pace. And whatever happened on Tuesday is ancient history on Friday. So, you know, within, <laughs> yeah. but ancient history, you know, like you said something stupid that seemed to undermine your credibility on Monday. And on Wednesday, you made a really good point. And a lot of people nodded and they said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. No, this is really well said. Like, that's it. Like you've even the scoreboard right there. Like most things don't live longer than 24 hours. Very few things live longer than 48 hours. So over to you, Viv. What, what are you... Yeah, well, that really ties in with a quote that I dig into in this, in Happy High Status, in the book, that I think is really useful for thinking about all these things. Uh, it's a Rudyard Kipling quote, and it is, to look success and failure in the face and treat those both those imposters the same. To look success and failure in the, in the face and treat both those imposters the same. So success is an imposter. Failure is an imposter. You know, this has happened to me so many times in my life that I've, I've, you know, I said I've published six books. Um, not all of those books have been successful. All of those books have been published and I had publishing deals and they've often had great reviews. Um, but then they didn't necessarily sell or sometimes, you know, like how to Own the room that book came out five years ago. Uh, it didn't get any reviews, 
it didn't really sell very well initially. Um, five years later, it's a bestseller. Um, and it's translated into mm. multiple languages and it has the longest life of any of my books. So many times you can look at a scenario and the trajectory of it. And at some points on the trajectory, that thing was a success. Other times it was a failure. Then it became a success again. Um, you know, there are loads of um, folkloric stories about this, you know, I, from all kinds of different cultures about the family who's, son fell over and broke his leg and they were so distraught and it was so terrible and then the next day war was declared and he didn't have to go and fight in the war <laughs> so <laughs> we never know what is success and what is failure only time can tell that and I think that's an incredibly useful thing to learn and for me that's part of this happy high status zen neutrality yeah. and you absolutely so rightly Boris say this is not about um, toxic positivity and pretending that everything's amazing and plastering a smile on your face when you've just been sacked. Um, nobody can be happy high status all of the time, but you can be upset and devastated and sorry and sad, but at the same time in the back of your mind, maintain the perspective of this too shall pass because it will, you know, you can grieve, you can, you know, ma many of us have moments in our lives when we're going to go through a rough time for a long time, because of all kinds of things that happen to us that are outside of our control. But if you can really work through those difficult emotions, whilst maintaining a sense of, no, maybe something good will eventually come out of this, then it, I think it does help you keep that sense of perspective. Yeah. And there's something very mature about this bringing together of humility and confidence. And maybe that, you know, the, the thing that I took away from the book most was that the magic, the secret sauce lies in blending together healthy doses of humility and low self-orientation with healthy doses of confidence and an authentic readiness to believe in yourself. So both is true, like, yeah, you got this. But yes, also, there will be some things that you don't have actually at all, and that you must eat humble pie. But the, the way that you combine these things into an authentic presence is the secret sauce. I mean, that's to me, it's like, this is if you had to say, like, put it in a sentence, what is the recipe on how to be, I would try to somehow use those ingredients. What do you think about the blending of humility and confidence into a kind of authentic presence? Is that just mumbo think, jumbo? I think, or? No, I think it's exactly what it is. I did a series of podcasts uh, when Happy High Status came out. So you can find those on How to Own the Room, Happy High Status. They're specific conversations about this concept and me explaining it to other people and then asking them about how it would work in their world. And I interviewed uh, another comedian, Tom Allen, um, who's a brilliant comedian. We started out, I started out after him, so he's much more experienced than I am. And he's got a fantastic television profile in the UK at the moment and is known as being a very confident, um, incredibly affable, up kind of person. And when I asked him to define this happy high status, he said, oh, I understand what this is, Viv. It's about being confidently insecure. Mm. 
confidently insecure. And it kind of blew my mind because he distilled in like two words what I've been trying to write about and think about for 10 years. (laughs) And it was also surprising to hear it from him, um, Tom Allen, because insecure is not a word you would ever attach to him. But that's because he has mastered the art of being confidently insecure. And to be confidently insecure is to turn up in front of others unguarded, undefended. You know, yeah. you're, you're vulnerable. You can be intimate. You can admit that life is difficult. You can admit that this is your failing and this thing is difficult for you. But you can be confident in admitting all of those things. And we are so often so polarized in our thinking that we don't believe that we can be confident and insecure at the same time. And yet when we are, that's when we're truly human. And that's the person that we are naturally without even thinking about it with our family, family members that we trust and love, um, with friends that we trust and love, with colleagues that we admire and respect. We are confidently insecure. And if we could be that in front of more people, then I think, you know, it sounds incredibly corny, but I think the world would be a better place. Because we would not be speaking from a place of ego. We would be acknowledging that we all have this blend of confidence and things that we're good at. We all have talents and skills uh, and gifts. But we all have insecurities and weaknesses and flaws. And if we can all approach each other totally open in the knowledge of that, then we can actually get on and do something instead of this camouflaging and faking and jostling for position and trying to get the edge on others we can work with each other in a way that is is open and open to change yeah i think that's absolutely well said and it's a it's a real call to action for all of us to spend more time reflecting on what confidently insecure would would mean and, and how we can turn up authentically and and be that and as a result, learn, get things done, but also feel the the urge to drive things and be ready to push on things with some level of assertiveness and and yeah, hopefully be be happy and impactful in the process. So I I think that's a great place for us to end. Um, I would like to just once again thank you so much for coming on uh this small little <laughs> project of ours and um and come and speak to our listeners and where can people find out more about you your work your podcast so check out uh, how to own the room it's a book and a podcast and the new book is called happy high status or happy high status <laughs> it's coming out it's available everywhere uh, in english at the moment but there's some foreign editions coming out in the next year i think the german edition um should be out in the next six months awesome. uh, and there's already a german edition of how to own the room And my website is vivgroskop.com, V-I-V-G-R-O-S-K-O-P. And I waste a lot of time on Instagram. So you can usually (laughs) find me there too. Perfect. Super. Viv, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paris. Thanks for listening to this episode. 
If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com. 